Let us after the sermon sing of Psalm 103, the fourth and the seventh stanzas. Our text this afternoon is found with the reading of Genesis 17, and of that, the verses 15 through 22, we, we've just read them, and because of their length, we'll forego reading it again. But just to read the verses 18 and 19, as here we see this suggestion of Abraham and and God's response to it, 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we open the scriptures this afternoon to look at an important moment in the life of one of the patriarchs of scripture. And we do so because it defines what is important for us as well as it was for that patriarch. We would not live as we do as Reformed Christians if we did not know this account and apply its teaching to our lives. Of course, that account is about Abraham and the covenant which God established with him. Now, not every Christian sees the importance of the covenant. I dare say that is rarely preached about in most churches. Some will even say that it is a pet subject of the Reformed people, that the Reformed get somewhat carried away with it in their preaching and in church naming and school or school naming. There are many other accounts of Scripture, they say, that need to be addressed, and of course that's true, but they'll say which are more important than covenant. And perhaps they might be right if, as they say, the covenant pertains to the Old Testament. Why bother to carry on with preaching about what is of or administering what is of no meaningful significance to the New Testament. But we ask, does it only pertain to the Old Testament when God is heard to say to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. The generations to come. God spoke these words just after he changed the name of Abraham Abram to Abraham. Meaning, and it's important, the father of many nations. 
Does anything then of what God says about the covenant not pertain to you and me as well? Maybe not draw that conclusion as to being of different nations than Israel, but who are also said to be blessed through Abraham. Is there any part of the Old Testament of its salvation narrative then, especially, that no longer plays a part in the understanding of the New Testament. Let us see this afternoon how true God is to his covenant promises as these pertain not only to what these meant for Abraham and for Israel, but also as carries through to the New Testament to you and to me. I proclaim the word of our Lord as you find that with our text under the following theme and head. Salvation only comes through God's covenant with Abraham. And we'll see in the first place, and this is not through Ishmael, but it's through Isaac, our second point. Not through Ishmael. Scripture says that God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land he would show him. And that land, of course, we all know was Canaan. God called Abram away from his family into a sort of isolation to protect him from the nations round about and ultimately to safeguard, as we know, the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. We hear him say in the beginning of the chapter in which we find our text, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and you will greatly increase your numbers. And further on he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So we may sound a little bit repetitious, but it's not repetitious, but it's underlining a point, making sure it's understood what God is doing. Do you hear the emphasis God places here on what he is doing on himself? He does not say, see what you can make of yourself, Abraham, and perhaps you will do enough so that I may find reason to bless you. But he speaks to Abraham about what he, God, would do for him, even as Abraham was a sinner just like you and me, in fact, really unworthy of the attention God would show him. Yes, Abraham was a blameless man, and God wanted him to continue to be blameless. And I spoke on that Psalm 119, Aleph, uh, not so long ago also here, I believe. Uh, what blameless means, it doesn't mean you are without sin, but it means that your purpose is there to serve righteously. That's why we're also called righteous, a righteous nation. You also find that in the form we read. 
Abraham would show many things in his life. He would show, yes, that he was a man of faith and of strong faith. When he was asked to sacrifice his son later on, Isaac, and he would have done so if his hand had not been stayed by the angel of the Lord. But Abraham was also, on two other occasions, a man of fear. I mean, being afraid of lacking in, in trust of God when he offered his wife to Pharaoh on one occasion and Abimelech later on. You see, it's exactly because Abraham was a sinner and we are sinners that God takes the initiative to establish his covenant with Abraham. And in this, God was determined to show his grace and his mercy to man. Even when Abram did not deserve it. Note well then that in saying this to Abraham, he also spoke about his descendants benefiting from this covenant. And this meant that God would obviously bless Abraham with children in order to make those promises work. He says to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and peoples shall come from her. But here's the situation. Abraham and Sarai, let's just say Sarah now, were without children. And that was really a sad point in their lives because they could not have children. And here God speaks to them about what they would have. Namely, a child. Abraham was 100 years old, 99, going on 100, 100th year. And Sarah was 90. He laughed at the prospect that somehow this could work. Of course, he has his attention on himself and on his wife. He looks at himself, he says, I'm old, she's old. That's not how things work. They don't, we don't have children when we're this old. Abraham says to God, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? How could they have children? What to do? How can this come about? And yeah, they're listening to the one who says that it will happen. And he's not just anyone, he's God. And so Abraham, not processing what God had, had said he would do, at least not processing it to the point of trust, he says to God, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who inherits my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And then God says, no, it's not about Eliezer here. 
It's about me saying that you will receive a son. And God asks Abraham to count the stars, says to him, you can't number them, neither will you be able to number your descendants. And so the covenant is established. We have that a few chapters back. Passing through the animals by Abram. And however, Sarah at this point still remains barren. We're talking now about when that covenant was established. How to carry out God's promise. Then we see that Abraham does not have the patience, the trust of waiting on God. Neither does Sarah understand how it's possible. And so they think of a substitute. Sarah suggests Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant, to be the solution. She becomes pregnant. Ishmael is born. Thirteen years. Many years later. And Abraham thinks, surely this is going to be the heir of God's covenant promises. And he says in our text, oh, that Israel might live before you. The congregation, God's promises are to be trusted. May not seem like an easy thing. But he gives these promises and he expects us to trust him. If we would have him carry out these promises according to our purpose, then it would be easily enough, fulfilled. Look what Abraham and Sarah do with Hagar. Just find the way to have children. God must accept. What Abraham offers. But God says no. It's not Eliezer. And it's not. Ishmael either. He says no. But Sarah your wife shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant. With him. As an everlasting covenant. For his offspring after him. And then God promises to bless Ishmael but this blessing will take place apart from the promise he makes to Abraham concerning the covenant as through the son he will give namely Isaac God is on a mission to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ congregation And he has his hands very carefully on everything to bring it about. All will happen according to his eternal purpose. And with Ishmael and later Esau, we see situations which are not without the purpose Satan has to prevent Christ's coming. But we won't go into that this afternoon. But back to Abraham. 
I want to tie this aspect of Abraham's plan for salvation through Ishmael and say something about the position of man in the matter of how he sees salvation coming about because that plays a very um, strategic part in, in Abraham's thinking as well. It shows how he thinks like many think. The world is full of religious religions offering salvation congregation. Their gods are both harsh and seemingly difficult to please, and yet they are not gods who expect perfection. They give allowance for sin as if it were naturally a part of the fabric of being human. But what does that mean if we give an allowance for sin? Salvation under these circumstances are left in the balance, is left in the balance. Then the question becomes, as we see with so many religions, have you done enough to earn salvation or not enough it's ultimately left in the hands of man to choose to do and be saved or not to do and to perish the only religion that sees their God in charge of salvation is Christianity even so not all Christians as they call themselves that, see God fully in charge. Millions upon millions of Christians feel that they have to earn their salvation through works. Still others say that man must invite or allow God into their lives through the exercising of their free will. As Reformed believers, we see God totally in charge of the offering of salvation. And why do we say that? Why do we see him as in charge? Well, first of all, because he is the creator. As creator, God is perfectly good. He is who he is. I am who I am, he says. He determined to create man perfect and expected him to hold on to that perfection to the honor and glory for which reason God created him, that he might worship God in holiness. And the alternative was clearly spelled out in paradise. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will die. You will die an eternal death. Therefore salvation, brothers and sisters, can only come through perfection. Yes, the God of Christianity is much more demanding than the gods of the nations. Man must be perfect to have any hope of salvation in the eyes of God. But man has sinned and is therefore worthy of only one thing, which is death. The wages of sin are death. And that holds true even if man had but committed one small infraction and done everything else perfectly. Of course, that's not how it is. 
But if, as I've often said, if Jesus Christ had to do 99.9999, whatever, percent, and we had to do that last little bit, we would be eternally condemned. So how to get out of our dilemma? Well, we as mankind cannot present a solution, no matter how hard we try. And so we make it easier on ourselves. We imagine that if we do enough good things, then we'll be worthy in the eyes of God to obtain salvation. But again, and there is something of that in what Abraham is doing here when he wants to present his son, Ishmael, before God. You see, the answer must be found with God and not man. The answer cannot come from earth, but must come from heaven. And if coming from there, God would have to graciously show mercy, even as he would need to hold on to his demand for us to be perfect. In his eternal plan, when God was determined, has determined all things, even before they happen, he determined to send his only son, who was together with him, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, one only true God. He sent him to become man of the flesh and blood of Mary, be our Savior by paying for our sins through his death on the cross, rising from the dead with the offer of salvation, life and salvation on his hands, on his person. Salvation, therefore, depends not on what we have done or think we have earned, but it depends on whom we belong to. Abraham, like so many before him and after him, thought it enough to present a son to God and have him be the one to carry God's covenant promise through as the line leading to the Messiah. And in line with this thinking, I, I hear my barber, and I call him a friend, he's a Muslim. I'm hoping to, to get through to him. He's a very eager, ambitious man of wanting to do what is right. He says that Muhammad is the prophet of God and to somewhat, in somewhat lesser extent, Jesus is also a prophet of God. And again, salvation becomes easy. You just have to do what is right. Your life is on a balance, as he says. If, you, if you're here, you're going to be okay. And if you are down here, you're not going to be okay. Imagine that. What was God busy with all this time? Huh. What was he busy with? If it's as simple as that. Just do what is right. Your life is 
in the balance, but you can do it. Do what is good. Pharisees taught that too. I don't want to compare him to the Pharisees. He probably knows very little about them. But it's interesting to see how men think along the same lines. They think they can do for God what makes them able to receive salvation. It's not enough to be a prophet, for Jesus to be a prophet. Where does that get us as to the final solution? You may say, think they are holy even without sin. But you have to ask, how, how is that true? They're men. You've made them that. Muhammad, you made Jesus just man and nothing else. Then they must have been born in sin and out of sin and even if they didn't sin, they'd still have it in their body to be called a sinner imperfect in the eyes of God. Anything that comes from Adam and Eve is such. All men have sinned, fallen short of what God has demanded of us. And so they throw the whole way of salvation out the window as to what God really wants. Because the only, the only one who is true God and perfect man can help us, can save us. And that's Jesus Christ. It's not enough putting Ishmael in the line, therefore, because it's not through our simplification of the dilemma of sin that we overcome it but it's through meeting head on the fact that we have sinned and are worthy of death that we see God come with the solution to destroy the power of sin. It's when he sent his only begotten son to become the perfect man on our behalf. And he's the only one that could become that. And so we must see who God puts in place to bring about our salvation and realize that he does so with a perfect purpose to secure our salvation. That brings us to the second point. Not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. That's not just finishing off the sentence. Not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. You can also see another part of that word, but, as only, but through Isaac. Ishmael was the dream of imperfection, as Abraham hoped would lead us to salvation. And as I said, many hold on to imperfection and dream about coming to salvation. But the covenant does not originate from the side of man. It originates with God 
There's nothing in us that makes it so that God has to establish the covenant. It's that he does. It's that he has a great love for what he has created. And this is the God who has then looked upon fallen man and, and seen more often than you and I can imagine how from beginning to end man's purpose was to sin and to do what was evil in the eyes of God. No, the covenant originates despite our sins, established by God. I am your God, O Abraham. I am your God, you believers. You as mother and father of this new, newborn child. I will do for you, most certainly, that which will secure your salvation and the salvation of the generations to come, your children. I am faithful in my covenant promises. I do it in a safe and secure way, undefiled by human hands. Not that he chose perfect persons over the imperfect, because there's no one who is perfect. But we do see conflict between those whom God did not choose and those who he did choose. Ishmael, as he grew older, would pester Isaac to the point that Sarah asked Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And what would that have meant if he had stayed in the camp? We don't know. But it seemed to God, as God knew, that that was the thing to do what Sarah said. Later on, we see a similar scenario between Jacob and Esau, such that we hear God say in Scripture, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So as carriers of the latter two, Israel would always be in conflict with the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. So later on, Herod would oppose Jesus and seek to destroy him. And if we look at the history of both these nations, we'll see that there was often conflict between them and the people of God. It's not that Isaac and Jacob deserve salvation. It's above all that God chose them to be in the line to lead to Christ. And yes, there was love for God with them, as with Father Abraham. And so to show that this God's plan was truly his when he, he said, now this is going to happen like a miracle out of the womb that has long been considered dead. God makes it alive. Yes, he does it in a miraculous way to show that it's, it's truly him. It's not a freak accident of, of having sexual intercourse. But it's, it's according to the plan of God when he says, a year from now, 
she will have a child. And that's beautiful to see, congregation, how God works his work. It's, it's not unlike when he came to visit Mary, as we hope to look at that a little more intensely as we head towards Christmas. It's a very similar. God works in, in a miraculous way. He shows that power is with him. And when he speaks, when he opens his mouth and he says, I will make a covenant with you, then we should not see that, especially if he says an everlasting covenant, we should not see that as something that peters out and dies. Because that's how many people who call themselves Christians see it that it has no relevance for today or very little. And so they don't understand the ongoingness of promise when we bring our children to the Lord to have them baptized they don't see that as a right thing. And why is that? Well, it's again because man wants to do it for God. He has to earn his own salvation. And what can children do? No, I have to do it, they say. I have to make it so that I commit my life to the Lord and then, then and only then does it count. I've seen my, one of my friends who was killed and I've seen his... His mother weep over him because he had not yet made profession of his faith. The Mennonite church. And it, it struck me and it hurt me to see her weeping because she didn't know where he was. Ah. And is every child that is baptized headed for salvation? No, but the promise of salvation is for everyone who is. Think about it. Abraham to be the father of many nations. How is that going to be? How did that ever come about? Has it come about? If we think that there is no ongoing covenant promise. And if we do not want to see that, yeah, we, we won't see the necessity of baptizing our children either. To bring them as much as they are children of the covenant through their parents, to bring them before the Lord and say, now here, he has those promises. Well, well, we've read the form. We know what we heard this afternoon, but take it to heart, brothers and sisters. There are many who will want to take your thoughts away from that and put you into doubt as to the covenant and baptism. And many have left us as well who have done so because they cannot understand this infant baptism as being right. We have to do something. Yeah, we do. We have to believe. We have to trust. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, Woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Imagine Jesus saying this. What does that mean? 
It means there is an ongoingness congregation. Salvation is from the Jews. That's not to push the Jews away now, but it's to say it has come through the Jews because God has safeguarded that Isaac should be the child of promise and Jacob should be the child of promise and Judah should be the child of promise all the way to, to Jesus Christ. John Piper, a Reformed Baptist, let's put it this way, if you are a Christian, you are a Jew. If you're not a Jew, you're not a Christian. Now he said this to give effect of wanting to say, well, it's connected to, to Israel. It has come, salvation has come through that. And even so that the New Testament speaks as through Paul, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul says. And then he adds in chapter 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the house, even to the Israel of God. And we are that new Israel. We have that connection. And it's through the covenant, brothers and sisters. That's why we're called God's people, God's Israel. You see it. We are not children of the slave woman, Hagar, but of the free woman, Sarah, Paul says elsewhere. God sees his purpose to redeem us through the blood of Jesus Christ, to call us his people, to be a father of many nations and yet to be singular is to suggest through scripture that the covenant is through one man, Abraham. But it's for all. We're all incorporated in him. We're part of his people. Because it is now the spiritual. No longer the physical. But it's the spiritual. As Paul says. Those who have faith. Are the ones who are blessed along with Abraham. The man of faith. So brothers and sisters. Be comforted in what you could also see this afternoon. We've carried on what God wanted us to carry on. Namely, that we baptize our children. And we see this young couple who brought him exactly for that, knowing full well that the child's future is not, first of all, in their hands, but in God's hands. He gave them, he entrusted to them. And they will trust as, many, as much as many of you who've had children, as many as you who've had children, will also trust that God will keep us 
Oh, there will be adversity. And for some, maybe not for others, more. But we will trust. We will go forward. We thank God for the peace and freedom that he has upheld for us, his children, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.